Welcome to Masters of Data, the podcast where we talk about how data affects our businesses and our lives. And we talk to the people on the front line of the data revolution. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. Our guest today has had a front row seat at some of the most game-changing innovations in the internet era. Netscape, Netflix, now Informatica. Bill Burns, currently the Chief Trust Officer at Informatica, has seen the information security industry change dramatically since he first cut his proverbial teeth on it in the 90s. So it's no surprise that when Bill and I sat down for the interview that our discussion touched across 20-plus years of dramatic changes in the way business is done on the Internet and how we as a society think about information security. So without any further ado, let's jump right in. Welcome, Bill. Oh, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, just really excited when I was looking in uh, your background and some of the stuff. You've really been around the block. I was, I was looking at some <laughs> of the stuff you've done. You've been at Netflix, of course. I'm a huge fan of Netflix. Yep. My kids in particular awesome. are big fans of Netflix. And even back to Netscape. So literally at this point, you're internet royalty going back to Netscape. <laughs> <laughs> and uh i mean you've you've really been you know like i said you've you've done a lot of things in this industry i was really interested in how you got into security because that doesn't seem to be where you started so how did you kind of get into the security realm based on where you kind of came from um i got into the security realm because i got caught in college so um the the story goes that my buddy and i had a computer but we didn't have a printer and we needed to print our lab reports. And the only place on campus um, where we went to school, Michigan Tech University, the only place you could print from a Mac was was in the uh, humanities lab, the arts the arts lab. So um, we were engineering students, but we would sneak in and we would eventually find this printer that was hooked up to all the Macs, and that was the only place that had Macs. Um, and so long story short, um, after a couple months of printing on their printers, then uh, I, I was caught, and they're like, hey, you're not in the humanities department. How come you are printing on the Macs here? So I had written some software that basically took over control uh, from the print <laughs> lab. Uh, I could go print my, my, my reports. Um, and eventually someone said, you need to, um, you need to go talk to the lab director, uh, who, uh, who turned out to eventually become my wife. So um, <laughs> as, as one of, the, as one of the, the few females on campus, um, Getting, quote-unquote, in trouble to talk to the lab director um, was a pretty good thing in the, in the end. So um, I was always curious. I was always sort of taking things apart. I was always trying to figure out how things worked. Um, so curiosity was just one of the natural sort of traits I had. It, um, and that's, that's what led me to get into computers and figuring out how things work. And then eventually, not just how they work, but how they work when they're sort of poked a little sideways or, you know, sort of told to do something that they weren't designed to do that turns into you know sort of fuzzing and security testing and so while i was getting my double e degree um and my business degree i i i realized i didn't like analog circuitry design and i didn't really like putting together a computer at the sort of you know molecular level and the and the data yeah. or the, the physical level i really enjoyed the networking and the communications aspect and then you know literally how does data flow between computers and you know over wide area networks and so i just got into the that part of the of the electrical engineering and the computer science and then and you know naturally it fell into um security and at the time 
um, security was always homebrew. It was not something that you bought off right, the shelf. Right. You know, firewalls were, you know, the very first firewalls were, were largely like a kit. So um, yeah. now it's a commodity feature in products. Um, so that's how I got into into security was just sort of you had to because you had to get your systems. You had to figure out how to make your system secure. Um, it wasn't a, a button you turned on at the time. Yeah, you know, that that's uh, it's funny you say that way. I've, I don't know how many computer science like oriented people I've met that came from, you know, kind of the electrical engineering, yeah. uh, the physics department. I, I actually was originally in physics and I. You know, I love playing with the with the lasers and the different toys, but then I end up enjoying the computer science better. And then I also realized that they were out there becoming millionaires, and no f- physicist becomes a millionaire. That's right. Lasers are cool, but yeah, yeah. yeah at some point you have to feed your family. Uh, no, that that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense. And you know, in, in particular, what what do you think has kind of kept you in the field? So once you you really got into it, you you got a taste of you know, what it was like to really, you know, dig into the guts of these things, you know, build stuff from scratch. What, what yeah. kept you going in the field of security? I, I th- that's a great question. So at some level, you are comfortable with building your system to meet your needs or to protect you against the things that you've thought of mm-hmm. um, and the countermeasures you've put in place. But then once you get into the real world and you get people who are motivated by different aspirations, um, you are, you know, maybe it's ideological, maybe it's monetary. There's, there's attack vectors you hadn't thought of. And so it's the, it's the cat and mouse game. It's the, you know, how do you, how do you stay ahead of the hackers? How do you stay only one by one step behind the hackers? Um, you know, being, protecting an educational lab versus a corporation, like very different, small, medium sized versus large size company, all sorts of different threat vectors, you know, budgets that you can apply that you can buy versus build. Um, it, the, the challenge for me was always the, what will they think of next and what can I think of next? So it was all of that sort of gamesmanship. You know, what it reminds me of is when I was in, uh, when I was in college, that was, I think that was the pitch that the, uh, national security agency was using and they were trying to recruit people on campus, yeah. but yeah, it's, 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 it's fun. I mean, it's, I, I, you know, really, I, I remember I was listening to another interview you did and, and how you talked about that. I. I like that way of thinking about it. It's like it's a competition. It's there, there's a there's some gamesmanship about it. It's serious stuff, but there's also right. the challenge, the puzzle. I think you is one of the words you used. Yeah, when we were at Netscape, um, we hired Paul Kotcher to to help us build SSL. We needed to get the browser, the web browser, to be a place that someone was was trust. They, they trusted the browser enough that they would put something like their credit card in and do electronic transactions. And at the time, this was in the sort of early to mid '90s. That was kind of a crazy idea. Like, we, can yeah. we make a web browser this trustworthy? And one of the things Paul mentioned um, you know, when we talked to him was you, you treat security like a game, like, a, like chess. Mm-hmm. And, but you don't want to design your security system so that it, is, that it ever has a checkmate move. The game is over. You always want to design your system so you ha- at least have another move. Even if it's a stalemate, that's a better solution than a checkmate. Hmm. Oh, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And even when you, you mentioned the credit cards, it, it is pretty amazing how things have changed so much. Because I remember when everyone was terrified of using their credit cards online. That's right. And I remember when I started doing that, I was like, I'm more terrified of giving it to the waiter at the restaurant. Because they're, it's actually much more likely they're going to steal that's my right. credit card. Yep. yep. Yeah, uh, that's crazy thought. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, you know, thinking about like where you what you did after uh, Netscape, you know, I in particular, like I said, I'm I, I'm a big fan of Netflix, but not only because my kids love watching cartoons on Netflix and, yep. and I do, too. But 
also because of the transition that Netflix went through. I mean, I've heard the yeah. operation story so many times about moving from the, you know, send the DVD in the, e you know, the mail uh, to the streaming, but I've never really heard it from the security perspective. And I, I'd love to hear like, what, what was your experience sitting uh, in the seat that you were in from this, you know, from information security, yep. watching that transition at Netflix going on from this very traditional uh, physical business to a streaming business being first in the cloud on AWS, things like right. that. Right. Yeah. W by the time I started at Netflix, um, the, the, the company had already started the, the migration. And so really they were focused on how fast can we go? How fast can we, can we move um, out of the, the DVD business into the streaming business? How fast can we grow that business? How fast mm. can we grow it internationally, but also uh, features? And so there was, a, there was several interesting patterns and, and anti-patterns that I learned there. Um, and this was in the early days. So I think one of the first first days I started there, um, they had they had done an experiment where they took the, the quote unquote on-premise uh, web server and put it in Amazon's cloud and you know it, it failed spectacularly and you'd normally think like oh my gosh someone's going to get in trouble or there's you know there's there's a lot of um, a lot of bugs being filed and like there was problem and it was seen as an experiment and they learned a lot of things and there was data and that you know there was one room that I was in that everyone was pouring over these giant screens full of data and it was interesting to you know they were all trying to figure out what did we learn from this what what can we improve and it wasn't seen as a failure it was seen as this is an experiment we've learned a yeah. bunch of stuff and we'll improve later on so early on it was a it was a culture that you that you know a they they appreciate experimentation but everything had to have a hypothesis and everything had to have data to back up what was your next move that was probably pretty uncommon at the time i mean now that's become kind of a you know, the idea of experimentation and data-driven mm -hmm. decision-making seems to be, you know, du jour. But I don't think back then that wasn't really what people were doing. Right. And, and part of their culture deck was, you know, we, we value data. We want the most informed person to have an opinion and to make a decision. Otherwise, it just devolves into who has the biggest title or who's the, you know, who's who's got the loudest voice in the room. Like, that that's not really an appropriate way to make, uh, you know, business decisions. Yeah. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. I mean, it's very human way to make decisions, but they're not very right. effective. Well, you know, one thing too, I remember when that was going on and, you know, a lot of us watching Netflix, everybody talked about kind of like the no ops versus DevOps kind of yep. like the, and how Netflix played into that. What was it, what was it like being on the security side of that? You know, how, how were you yeah. interacting with those teams that were working that way? Right. So yeah, good question. So that was where I learned um, a real practical use of the metaphor for the security metaphor for guardrails. So rather than controls and yes and no and sticks and you know you sort of you know beating people over the head with these rules and policies, you really understood guardrails, which was how can I create the system, how can I codify the security policy into the system so that if you do the right thing. If you check in code with the right method and if you follow the right routines, the security sort of protects you. It's kind of like guardrails on a road. And if you have a dev test environment, the guardrails are really wide. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of innovation, a lot of chance for the, for the developer to make mistakes because they're probably not dealing with credit card data, for instance, or really sensitive information. And so they're free to make more mistakes. They have wide guardrails. Yeah. Um, 
the sooner you or the closer you get to the sensitive data, the protected, the regulated data, the guardrails get really tight. And so what that means is the the developer has less freedom, right? So maybe this is the production environment with credit card data. Uh, maybe it's Sarbanes-Oxley significant. Um, and so the change controls are more stringent, the sign-off. So, so the process feels a little slower. Um, and everyone understands why, but it's not like, well, there's one-size-fits-all change control system, for instance. So, mm -hmm. so you have these varying degrees. You have these, these um, the guardrails are wider. The controls are a little bit looser in the, in the less controlled environment. That was, one of the, that was one of the places where I really learned what, what does that mean and how do you actually instantiate that? Yeah, I know. I, I love that analogy because I, I, you know, when I, when I was starting out in, you know, kind of the DevOps ops area in the early 2000s, it was, you dreaded the security people getting involved That's because right. they restricted activity, slowed down activity, yeah. you know, actually broke things on a regular basis. Right. That and, was the department of no, <laughs> as opposed to the department of how. Right, right. And I, and I, and I love the way because it's because security almost being an enabler as opposed to, right. you know, and, and enabling the right type of activity as opposed to just restricting things. And yeah, and I think part of that comes from risk or risk management. So risk is not binary. And, and yeah. the higher up in a company you go, the more comfortable you become with ambiguity and with risk. And, mm. and in some cases, you have less data to work with to make a decision. And so you become more comfortable with, all right, what's, what's the least amount of data I need to make an accurate or a good enough decision? And if you're new to, let's say, engineering, you're trying to get really precise with tons of data and, and you end up being slower and you, you make decisions more carefully um, when in fact you need to really understand what's, what's the worst that could happen, what's the best that could happen, and what is the environment that I'm dealing with, right? So mm -hmm. if, I'm in a, if I'm in a dev test environment and I don't care about availability, I'm not playing with production data or regulated information, I can I can afford the developer to be more creative and, and right. not worry about you know some of these other parameters. Um, so you you make the the guardrail decision based on the risk, and so then you start to understand the nuances of well, what's the business impact? What's the what's the worst that could happen if this developer you know his cra code crashes or it's open to the world for you know an hour while we're trying to figure out what the vulnerability was. Uh, that doesn't matter as much as um, a production system. So right, what am right. I going to do to this developer's day-in, day-out job if I have one security policy that says no across the board? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way of thinking about it. And I also love the way you, you, you talk about the being able to make decisions in the, you know, with, with less data. Because I, I, mm -hmm. I would expect that in, on your, you know, in the roles that you've been in, typically I, you know, having come, uh, you know, more traditionally from operations areas myself, there's, there's a sense that you have all the data you need, which is actually usually not true. Right. You think you have the data and a lot yep. of times you don't. Whereas it, I, I would, it seems to me like almost, uh, you know, when you come from a security perspective, the idea that you don't have all the data is actually baked into the whole, you know, way of thinking. Like you, right. you know that you don't have all the data. So how can you make the best decision based on the data you have at hand yep. and try to, uh, you know, you know, lower the risk, like you're saying. You know, that uh, that totally makes sense. I, you know, when I was looking at uh, your your blog, and I remember that I, I really like this. Um, I'm going to take a quote from one of your blogs, and I want to talk a little bit about it. So one of the things you said is, as a security professional, I can attest that the lifeblood of any company is the sensitive data that they process. Protecting this data is a charter of a company's information security team and a responsibility of all employees who work there. And I, I just, I really, I really like that, you know, kind of almost a, a picture of the mm -hmm. lifeblood of a company. It seems like that's, 
that's actually something that's changed pretty dramatically over the last few years. So when when yep. you when you write something like that, tell me a little bit more about what what you're thinking when you say it's a lifeblood, and you know, particularly what you're doing now with Informatica. Yeah, and I think I wrote that before some of the bigger breaches that we've that we've yeah. read about, right? So the OPM breach and Equifax, and you know, the companies that you literally entrusted your your most sensitive information to. It got lost. It got breached, yeah. and you know there's a, there's a myriad of reasons why. But but you know c- people and other companies now make decisions, business decisions to do business with those companies, with perfect hindsight, rear view, 2020 vision, saying what did they do with other sensitive data, right? So so customers, consumers are, are are making informed decisions based on how how can I trust a company with my sensitive data? And it doesn't have to be the most sensitive data. It can be, you know, mildly sensitive data. It can it could be information that I that I'm talking about freely, but you know, in the aggregate I might wonder like, wow, if, if they if they treat my data that poorly, wh- what other what other poor decisions are they making? Um, right, you know, right. So we hear about the, the Facebook um, scandal and, you know, people are chatting back and forth with their friends or clicking on survey results. And so, you know, it, in the minutiae, all of those little pieces of data and um, preferences are, are sort of innocuous. But in the aggregate, they start becoming really important and they, and they become very personal to people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, look at, um, I look at that, I think about that quote, and at the time, I was really focused on sensitive data. You know, like what's the most sensitive data? Yeah. But in but in hindsight now, um, it's it's less sensitive data. It's it's all of my personal information, right? And I think with you know GDPR coming out, you know, in in May, people are saying, you know, there's there's all sorts of attributes about myself um, that I may not want to have shared, or maybe I don't explicitly want to share. And so, why would someone else? release that information. So I think there's been a new sort of awakening of how how do companies treat my data? And again, it doesn't have to be sensitive data. Maybe it's just analytics or it's, you know, log information or activity, click stream data. Um, all of that becomes, A, valuable to companies. They're figuring out how to monetize that. And B, to the person or to the customer, they're thinking, maybe I don't want all of that um, shared without my knowledge. Or, or maybe yeah. if it is with my consent, um, I, I need to make an informed choice about that, and maybe I want to be more particular. So it really is. At the time when I when I when I said that uh, in the in the blog, that was the lifeblood of companies. And now we're seeing that even the the less sensitive data is still important and monetizable by companies and to individuals. They're, they find it, you know, they find it personal. Yeah, you know, and and I want to come back to that, but. For those who might be listening who don't know GDPR, so can you talk a little bit more about what that is? Sure. So that's the General Data Protection Regulation. Um, it's it's going into force May 25th, 2018, and it's been I think it's two years that they that Europeans uh, ratified this law, um, and it it is a data protection. So data privacy is what we right. think about that in in America, but it's data protection around um, people in the EU citizens in the EU, and it's their personal information. So they're personally identifiable or attributes about that person. It's protecting that information from leaving EU soil, so data transfers, for instance. So really, any company that does business with people in the EU have to abide by the GDPR. And the fines are significant if you you don't. I was talking with uh, our chief information security officer, George Gertel, about this uh, a couple weeks ago, and it looks like 
when that actually goes into effect later in May, there's probably very likely going to be some big court case with some company, you know, right. having made some serious infraction and and kind of uh, and, and that makes me that makes me think um, with the way that you you kind of you kind of contrasted those two words, you know, protection versus privacy. Yeah, and it seems like uh, it seems almost like privacy is more of a passive word. This describing said, but this protection, it seems like it, it's a more active word. I mean, making the point that they are going to actively protect people's data and people yep. can ask for the, you know, the right, the right to be forgotten and things like that. It's a much more active idea about data privacy than maybe we've had before. Is that, is that yeah, certainly from an American's perspective? Yeah. Um, um, I, I agree. And I think it's, it's kind of an awakening across the board that says, Hey, um, the, these rules, these regulations that the Europeans are putting in place that, you know, they value privacy as, as, you know, an innate, uh, right for, for a person. And that's that's not um, that's not the American belief, and I think people are starting to realize what what that really means when they lose access to that data. Um, I, I think I think there's now an appreciation for um, maybe I don't want to um, have all of these online services for free in exchange for my private information that I I guess I don't really know what they're doing with it. Yeah. Do you feel like some of that's because the way we developed internet services here and the expectations we have for that, or is it is it really because of the way Americans think about it? I mean, how, why do you think there is such a difference in public perception of privacy of data? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I, I, think, um, I think a lot of private information was used inappropriately in Europe in you know, years gone past, yeah. and, and people have, <clears throat> excuse me, have seen the ramification of using that information to target people. And mm. in, the, in the American um, uh, economy, we're... we're, we're in exchange for receiving ads, we are we are getting additional services. And as the as the marketers want to figure out how do I target that person more efficiently, I want to reach that you know that demographic. I want more information about the demographic, and eventually, I'd love to get information as a marketer to identify a person or a class of people. And this is where I start to gather information and then use that to, to more efficiently market to people in exchange for services. So I you know Facebook doesn't cost me anything to join. Back in the day, AOL was $15 a month. Right. Um, someone has to pay for this, and I'm, you know, I'm paying it for it somehow. And in this, you know, in this day and age, in the in the current internet generation, I pay for things by giving them access to my to my behavioral information. I always wondered how much of that money that AOL charged went to making those CDs that they would mail everywhere. <laughs> I got so I remember getting so many of those. That I was actually making decorations with them, putting them in the microwave in the lab, and like getting the pretty colors and hanging them from the ceiling. Yeah, well, you know, at the time uh, we had to buy thousands of modems and keep them in place. So there was you know racks <laughs> and racks and buildings full of modems that we had to pay for. So I'm sure fifteen dollars a month paid for a lot of modems. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, back to the uh, kind of way you were you were talking about that. I, as you were talking about it, you know, an, an idea kind of came to mind is that, you know, originally when I read the lifeblood quote, I think I was thinking exactly the way you, yeah. you know, the way you were talking about thinking about it before is that, you know, data is, you know, core to a company's, you know, business in the sense that it's uh, is a positive thing. Is like, you know, this is the way we're able to provide better services, but. Yep. Then almost the way you're talking about, particularly with things that have happened with Facebook recently and, you know, potentially with Google as well and a lot of this misuse of data, it seems like that actually, the same analogy takes on kind of a sinister effect. It's like we are, we, you know, our private data is the lifeblood of their 
financial model right. is driving their business. And just like you were, you were, you were saying is that there's a you know long period of time. I don't, I wasn't thinking about what I was clicking on Facebook. I mean, I'm, I'm in the industry. I yep. know, I know a lot more than a normal person about what I should do to protect my data. And I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what data was being gathered on, you know, on me. And it seems like that's, there might, there might come to a point is there, is there really going to be a reckoning around how these, you know, our sense of having, you know, free services versus these company base companies making billions and billions of dollars off of, right. you know, our data not necessarily freely given. Right. And, and, you know, to, to take the, the less sinister view. So a company could be you know, a completely legitimate cloud service provider and they're providing information and services to their customers. And now what customers are or what companies are realizing as part of this digital transformation wave is there's all of that data about usage yeah. that is data in itself, this metadata. Now you can use that to say, how, how can I give better services to my customers? You know, I can start to to mine that data and say, oh, I can I can split up this customer segment into sub-segments and realize that if if this particular customer is behaving like this other customer, but they don't have the same services, there's an opportunity that I can upsell right. or I can expand or I can I can check in with them. And so now metadata becomes more interesting, more monetizable to companies. And so they realize that all the stuff that they used to be not tracking and sort of leaving on the cutting room floor that's actually very valuable. Now, now you can start to, to make make a business out of um, this behavioral data. And it's not for sinister purposes. It's for completely legitimate purposes. We just didn't have the, the log management. We didn't have the analytics. We didn't, we didn't have any of these capabilities before. Yeah. Well, you know, as, as, you, as you say that, I mean, particularly from, uh, you know, kind of coming from the same kind of data-driven business that, that you guys are doing over Informatica, I think, maybe the, the the definitely the positive spin to put on this is that we in the enterprise software business which are definitely behind the curve on these kind of things mm -hmm. we have an opportunity to learn from that experience like you're saying and actually do it in a positive way because it even as you're saying that it comes to mind of you know i've spent a lot of time with customers showing data about their usage showing them their metadata and having mm -hmm. discussion with them like hey i think you could do this i could do that and i remember uh i remember having this discussion and um we were looking at this particular customer, the type of searches they were running. And this one guy had, for some reason, search for God. And we, <laughs> you know, capital G-O-D. And we thought, well, uh, you know, I made a joke about it. I was like, did you, did you find God? You know, how did that work out for you? And uh, he, was, he was not amused by that. And, uh, and I, it, it kind of occurred to me as like, you know, I thought we would have a mutual joke there. He was like, you know, he didn't, he, he didn't have the idea that, well, that metadata is going somewhere. Right. And so, you know, it, I, I think it's it's always there's a very fine line between the, I don't know, call it, you know, the creepy. Right. And the and the helpful and, and really being able to walk that fine line is going to be a challenge for, you know, these, you know, kind of data driven businesses going forward. I would think. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the customers, the public certainly expect a cloud service provider to protect that data. But at the same time, the company has to figure out, oh, how do I use this data? How do I mine it, right? So the, if you encrypt everything, for instance, that seems to be the you know the latest thing is, well, let's encrypt all the data. Well, if you encrypt the data, it's really hard to use it. Um, and, and something needs to access that data in order to do something with it. If it's, right. if it's encrypted and quote unquote safe and no one can use it, it's really not valuable. So right. there's, there's a fine line. Again, you know, we talked about 
you know, uh, guardrails and we talked about, you know, policies, there has to be a fine line of, uh, or a distinction of, well, what, what can I do with that data and who's authorized to use that data? And that's where security versus privacy come in. You know, they, they sort of butt heads. But GDPR, I think it has something like 35 references to the word security in the regulation. So although it may be a data protection privacy regulation, there's a lot of security requirements in there. So companies now have to figure out, okay, how do I have a viable business model? Take all of this data, sensitive or not, I still have to protect it. How do I, how do I stay in business? But how do I you know, monetize this in a unique differentiating way so that I can be competitive. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I don't know what you're, what you're seeing kind of in your sphere of influence, but I'm, I'm not, I don't get the feeling that a lot of companies have really come to grips with that yet. You know, there's going to, yeah, it's probably going to be a, some mad chaos, <laughs> you know, in the well, and a lot months. of this is based on, you know, precedents and case law and, and this is really untested. So, yeah. I, you know, a lot of the lawyers I talk to are like, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens, yeah. you know, May 26th. What, what does that day look like? Um, as you said, you know, is, is there, are there people staging uh, lawsuits and, you know, investigations to figure out who's not in compliant with the law when it's a brand new untested law? That's true. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's a lot like some of the antitrust stuff that went on before, you know, with Microsoft and Google a long time ago. It's like right. you have to kind of establish the, the precedent. Uh, well, you know, w one thing uh, kind of, Maybe one last thread about this, you know, data privacy. Uh, you and I talked a little bit before about, you know, artificial intelligence. And it seems like in particular when you're talking about where this is going in terms of taking customers' data and taking uh, kind of this cross, you know, cross-customer metadata and looking at a group of customers and seeing what their behaviors are to help them. Yep. A lot of that's borne up in ideas around artificial intelligence machine learning because you you really want that to be automatic and you don't want mm -hmm. you know somebody mm -hmm. you know peering through it and also in some sense you might think oh well that might be maybe that's safer because it's a machine looking at it mm -hmm. but right. then maybe maybe not because you know it's, it goes back to the guardrail discussion is like what is what do those guardrails look for an automated algorithm behind the scenes versus yeah. a human i mean have you have you thought much about that or how do you think that's actually going to play into this whole whole discussion yeah one so a couple things uh the speed at which computers operate on data, and, and obviously there's benefits to that, but the, the challenge with traditional computers versus AI is, I think we're all comfortable with automation, and we're comfortable with computers sort of automating repetitive tasks and doing them more efficiently. Right. Um, the, the, the challenge is with traditional computers, like there's humans writing the code, and so when it breaks, or even when it works, we understand what happened. And we're getting to the point now where, um, with artificial intelligence, we're creating algorithms that then evolve and they, they form new patterns. And in some cases, they make decisions that we don't understand. The creators of, this, of some of these AI routines don't understand the conclusions that the, that the algorithms are coming up with. So yeah. couple that with the speed and, and the, the pace of innovation. Very, sim very soon, we're gonna get to a world where the computers are literally making decisions that we don't understand. And it could be the right conclusion, but we don't understand how it got there. And yeah. depending on what the sphere of influence this machine has or this AI algorithm has, it could have profound impact, right? So if, if, if machine learning determined you know, how, how to best drive a car, do we really understand what it's optimizing for? Yeah. 
um, and, and other, you know, very much more complicated, complex system-to-system uh, -system interaction. So I, I worry a little bit about we don't understand the failure modes. We don't understand the guardrails that the system is willing to live within, yeah. um, to stay within. So that that's concerning to me because it sounds like we're, we're having fun sort of uh, innovating and we're getting some benefit to it. But it, it's getting to a pace now that, and, and some people are, you know, some scientists are telling me, we don't, we don't understand what it did. We don't understand how it got there. So if we yeah. keep innovating down that road, um, what are we actually trying to accomplish now? Um, that's, that's one of the areas of concern. Um, when I was in venture capital, um, looking in the security space, uh, someone asked me, what's the best, what's the most impactful innovation or invention in the security space in the last five or 10 years? And people were expecting, you know, this box or that appliance or cloud computing. And, and right. my, my reply was APIs. Oh. APIs <laughs> were the best thing to happen to security because now we don't have people clicking on GUIs or installing, you know, physical boxes in order to keep up with the, the size or the velocity of growth in a data center. Um, now the security teams get to keep up and actually keep pace with innovation with the developers of software because everything is becoming um, you know, software. So um, APIs allowed the security team to keep up. You know, 10 years ago, it was sort of dark days of security where everyone was on VMs and we had we were try still trying to sniff the, the network traffic and trying right, to figure right. out you know, what was on these boxes. Um, so APIs and automation gives now the security team a chance, a fighting chance. So we have that um, at our disposal and if we can apply machine learning and AI to our systems, you know, sort of doing them for good, we can at least keep up with what the what the bad guys are trying to do. Um, but in the end, if we start applying AI to both sides of the of the equation and we start losing control, it's really unclear what what way, how can we impact the system that's you know essentially fighting itself now. Yeah, it sounds like some sort of war of robots where decide to be, who's going to be our overlords. I know. Yeah. Someone <laughs> said, uh, I forgot who this was, but some, someone was, someone said recently, you know, all, all AI and ML, ML discussions uh, talk about AI, AI, and then it devolves into Sky, Skynet and then, you know, sort of like discussions <laughs> over. Um, maybe that was Hugh Thompson at the RSA conference, but, but I was like, yeah, we, d we don't want to just think about the dystopian future. Right. So, yeah. so I would encourage anyone out there that's working in this area to think about how do we force the, dis this, the machines to tell you, how did I get to that decision so that we are still in control and that we have a, we have a way to influence the, the system and the network. If, am I remembering right that I, I think even in GDPR, doesn't it have something about algorithms describing how they got to something. I thought I remember reading or hearing about that, but it seems like oh. there's, that was maybe, where was this regulation under consideration? Yeah. But yeah, okay. that, that seems to be, that seems to be coming up more. And I, I thought that was very interesting and how hard that's going to be. Right. It's like to your, to your point, even the guys who write the code don't necessarily understand the steps that the algorithm went through to actually arrive at yeah. a conclusion. So. Which is both exciting and kind of a little terrifying at yes. the same time. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, you know, maybe just to, to wrap up, um, you know, so as you in particular in your you know, kind of position around and, I, and I, I love the title, you know, chief trust officer. I think that's that's really great based on everything we talked about. Mm -hmm. it, it really is about trust and particularly in, in, in companies in this day and age. What, what, are, what are the challenges you're, you're you think you're going to be dealing with over the next year or two? Like where, where, where you, where's your kind of focus? Yeah. So um, 
so as chief trust officer, um, I look at a couple different vectors. One is availability, right? So I have two main roles. I have availability, keep the cloud up, and I have safety and security. So keep keep the data safe, keep the system's integrity intact. Right. Those are the two main areas of focus. And, and Informatic is going through transformation. So we've been in the cloud space for a while, but, but we, we've had one small offering and we've been slowly building it, but we've been largely selling on-prem software. And now we're taking all of that all those products and features and turning them into software features on a platform in the cloud. And so one of the big things I worry about is just availability. How do we build the cloud fast enough to keep up with customer customer demand for cloud services? And at the same time, because I you know inherently have a security background, how do I bake all the right guardrails and security controls into these new transforming business processes and development processes that the developers and the product teams are, are trying to, to hmm. build and, and evolve. So we have you know, growing customer demand, we have uh, a ever increasing footprint and complexity of our cloud. So how the, the biggest thing I worry about is how can I keep pace with the developers and their innovation on those vectors of availability and safety? Um, there's you know, lots of less lessons learned from Netflix and from other, from other folks. Um, but putting it into practice and helping a company transform its culture to understand yeah. the value of those of those vectors, that's that's really a challenge, and that's actually what gets me up every day, and it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it, it really is about culture, isn't it? It's it's a very cultural issue. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, culture trumps strategy, and you know, if I if I can't if I can't win the hearts and minds of the developers and the executives at a, on, on a cultural level, what we need to change together, you know, tactics and policies, all that stuff just seems like big friction. Um, when it's at the cultural level, when it's you know not even top down, but it's at the cultural level of the company, that's when it resonates with everyone and it becomes much, much more, um, you know, synchronous and you know it's it's a much better way to work together. So yeah, that's. It's a real challenge to, to be able to figure out how do I move the culture and how do I work with the with the teams. But it, when you're operating at that level, as opposed to the sort of you know arm wrestling and the and you know the, the security team of no, um, when you're operating at that higher level and first principles, that's um, a much more that's a much more fun challenge. Yeah. Well, you sound like you got your uh, work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Like I said, it keeps me it gets me up every day, so it, it's fun. Well, that's great. And when uh, I think we're we're just going to have to schedule an update. And you can come in and tell us how uh, <laughs> how that's been going right. for you. But no, it, it sounds great. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast, Bill. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thanks, everybody, for listening to Masters of Data Podcast.